Okay, so tonight is going to be um, a little bit of an interesting night because I'm kind of speaking to a couple different groups of people. So some of you were at our kickoff Saturday before last. Um, most of you were not. Some of you have done your first week of study, but some of you have not. So I'm going to try and, and hit on a teaching that fits for everyone. So if you were there at the kickoff and if you did your homework, there might be moments where you're just getting affirmed of like, oh, yeah. I know this, or yeah, good to hear it again. But for some of you, you might be like, wait a minute, I don't feel like I'm connecting all the dots. And that might be just because you haven't done the full five days of homework. And as you catch up, it, it should make more and more sense, okay? So I wanna spend a little bit of time talking about why we do what we do. For those of you, especially those of you who won the cookies, you have heard this several times. And so I will try to be brief and clear at the same time. So. Women's Bible study, women's ministry, sometimes has a bad rap, right? Maybe you come um, from different experiences, um, but maybe you're like me, and when I was presented with the topic of women's ministry, I was immediately turned off, and I said, I don't like women's ministry when I was offered this job. And what I meant by that is not that I don't like women, and not that I don't like ministry, but I didn't like the, the norm that I have experienced at times or seen around the country where we kind of just focus women's ministry on the women, right? At first that sounds fine, right? Oh, women's ministry, it's all about the women and making friends and, and fun and good stuff. But really, women's ministry should be about God. And when it's not, all we're really doing is coming together and filling our otherwise already packed schedules or we're coming and we're just getting these quick fixes, maybe like these quick pick-me-ups or we get a self-esteem boost that gets us about 24 to 48 hours and that's it. And I feel like there's so much more, not because I think we're so great, but because I think God is and because I think we were made for such a bigger purpose. So that's gonna change how we do women's ministry. And it's not because we are the smartest girls in Iowa, right? It's not because we're better or we're an elite form of women's ministry at all, but we do know or want to know how very good and awesome God is, and so we're going to make that our focus. So what that means for Bible study is that we are going to push ourselves when we come here. We'll make friends, we'll make connections, you'll go to the same small groups every week, but the main goal of Bible study time is to learn about God. So we will open our Bibles and we're going to follow this process. And you've heard me talk about this before. It's not my own idea. It comes from Jen Wilkin. But the first thing when we open our Bibles is we're not going to say, okay, I'm here to learn about me. I'm here for an emotional fix. No, we are going to lead with our mind and we're going to look for comprehension first. Simply put, what does the text say? Comprehension. Next, we're going to say, okay, interpretation. What does the text mean? And then after we've done that, then it's like we've earned the right to say application. What does it mean to me? How will I change? How will tomorrow look different than yesterday did because of these truths? Okay? Each week we're going to rejoice in the fact that we are not the main character of the Bible because God is. Okay? So we are going to lead out with our minds and we are going to believe that the path of transformation goes from our mind to our hearts and then out into our hands. So we're not gonna come here and just get a list of these things that we're gonna do, do, do to make ourselves feel better about ourselves or to feel good and religious. 
We're going to make sure that anything that comes out in our life, anything that comes out in our hands, comes from a sincere heart, and that that heart was changed by what we know in our mind, and that's truth, and where we will get truth is in God's word. Okay? So as we apply those principles this semester, what we're going to be studying is where God dwells. This is a seven-week study that I wrote over the last six months, and I want to tell you a little bit about how it evolved. I got really excited probably last uh, February because I thought what we should study was the tabernacle. And I probably texted a couple, couple of you fellow nerds, and I was geeking out. And I was like, oh my goodness, we'll spend 12 weeks in two chapters of the Bible, and two of you will come, and it'll be so fun. And I was serious. I mean, that's how I got started, was just narrowing in on the tabernacle. We were going to look at all the parallels and the details, and it was going to be fabulous. But then I was talking about it in the offices. And this was before Drew Stevenson had moved up to Minneapolis. And he was like, oh, the tabernacle's awesome. That's a great idea. But what if you zoomed out and did a survey study of, of the whole Bible? And in the next 20 minutes, he helped me come up with this list of seven places where God says that he dwells with his people in Scripture. And we made up this list. And he was like, ooh, you could call it Emmanuel. And I was like, oh, that's too Christmassy. We can't do that. <laughs> So that is how we got to where God dwells. So what we're going to do this fall is we're going to march through Scripture. We're going to be in Genesis tonight, and then we're going to be in Exodus for three weeks. Then we're going to hop over to the New Testament. We're going to say, where does God dwell? Oh, he dwells with us in Jesus. And like I said last week, we're going to feel like the study is over then, right? We're going to be like, oh, that was quick, because what could be more climactic than, than Jesus? What could possibly be better than than God walking along the road with us. God in us is the only thing that could be better than that. And so week six, we will study the Holy Spirit. And in that, we're really going to zoom in on what we are called to do as God's priests and as God's tabernacle. And then our last week of study will be in Revelation. And we're going to look at the new heavens and the new earth the new Jerusalem. And it's the, the best thing about this study, as I have enjoyed being in it, is that it grows each week. And we're definitely going to feel each week build on the week before, and we're going to feel suspense build until we get to Revelation. And I know this will surprise so many of you, but when I was um, working on Revelation in August, I was bawling. I know, I never cry. I'm always so put together. But I was bawling as I studied Revelation because I was like, amazed that God would so fully restore his nearness. And it just quieted me. I just couldn't believe that there will be no temple needed because God will so fully be with us. And this is our future when we are in Christ. So I'm really excited for you guys to experience that with me. So we are studying where God dwells. What I want to point out, this list is not necessarily um, all-inclusive. This is not like... There are other places in the Bible where you can be, be like, wait, God was there with those people. And we're going to hit on a lot of those. You might not see them as the title of a chapter, um, but they'll come up. T- things like uh, Moses being before the burning bush. That will come up as a smaller point in the teaching or possibly in your homework. Okay? Uh, this hits on the major references, and it focuses really on God's revelation to a corporate people. So God coming, revealing himself to a a large group of people. A question that we're going to ask every single week 
um, is what do we learn about God from this text? If you've been in our Bible studies, you've noticed like that's a weekly thing that we are going to force ourselves to say. What do we learn about God this week? And then how should we live accordingly? So because God is blank, we should be blank. Um, so the big picture answer to that. So right away, I'm going to invite you to see the big picture of the Bible. The big story, the big picture is that because God is transcendent, you're going to hear that word a lot. So transcendent, meaning he is um, extending or lying beyond the limits of ordinary experience. God is transcendent. He is beyond comprehension. Because God is transcendent, we should what? Stand in awe, right? Because he is so beyond our, our grasp or our understanding, we should have respect and awe and wonder. And we're going to see that to be true about God all over these references. But secondly, we're going to see that God is imminent. God is near. God is at hand. He is so close that the people in the Old Testament could, could see the cloud right in front of them. He is so close that Jesus touched people and healed them. And in Revelation, he is so close that he wipes away tears. Because God is imminent, we are in awe. Because, or because he is imminent, we are comforted, right? But also because he is imminent, we should want to live holy lives. So kind of think about that sentence and think about how you... Um, how you'll apply that as the semester goes on. So as we get started right away, we need to ask this question. Why does God come near to man? Why does God dwell among his people? What makes a king want to leave his palace and go down and interact with, with his people? Maybe his poor or rebellious or diseased people. What would ever make a God, a king, want to do that? Well, simply put, what we will see this, this fall is that God reveals himself that we might know him. He reveals himself that we might know him. And as he reveals himself, each time he is teaching his people about his character, but also about his covenant, about his relationship, about what kind of relationship he wants to have with his people. The theme goes all over scripture. It is definitely not limited to the scriptures that we are going to see. In the thick of the Old Testament, in Jeremiah 23, we read this, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? And then at the other end of the Bible, the Apostle Paul talks about God's nearness. Maybe you're familiar with this verse in Acts. It says that we should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from any of us. The nearness is, of God is a prominent theme in the Bible. I'm really excited for us at the end to be able to grip our Bibles like this and say, I get it. I get the big picture of the Bible, not just all of the disjointed stories. So tonight we're going to begin in Genesis 1. You are welcome to follow along with me or we put a page for note taking in your workbooks. We're going to look in Genesis 1 and what we're going to see is we're going to see where God fully dwelt. And our goal here is to create this tension of how perfect Eden was. 
We're going to see just how perfect it was for Adam and Eve when God was fully dwelling with them there. So I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 2 that you read in your uh, your homework this week. Chapter 2, verse 7. As I read this um, picture, Eden, with me. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth is the Euphrates. So I want us to really use our our creativity and picture this. Actually picture if you are Adam and Eve in this garden. It is an oasis. It's sitting there in the fertile crescent of the Middle East. It is an oasis and it is a sanctuary. The Babylonians used a word edinu, like Eden, edinu, and that meant paradise. This is a royal garden is how I want us to picture it. And it was It's not just that it was beautiful, but it also met practical needs for God's people, right? As it was well watered with four rivers, but it also gave them the food that they needed. And then it it met our need, mankind's need and desire for beauty. Have you ever taken time to really notice that this, this garden was full of gold? I heard it in a song talk about how these rivers were probably sparkling because Through the water, you could see gold. We're going to see gold several places throughout our study. And we're going to see onyx stone and other beautiful gems. These are minerals that um, I want you to watch for. There are things that I'm going to put in the study that say either sneak peek or looking back. Those are moments, these aha moments that I've just geeked out over that connect all of these different stories. So what else was in the garden? We see the the tree of life, which what we know about that is that it gave eternal life. We see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What we know about that is that it gave moral awareness. And we see in other references that God was fully there. It says that God was walking in the cool of the day. God created all of these things and he called them good. And the last thing he put there was man. Have you ever noticed that he says about mankind that they were very good. Here we are now. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. We're the cherry on top. Why did he put mankind there? Well, you saw, I think, in your homework that God put man there to work the land. Have you ever noticed that work was brought in before sin? So we can't say that all work is from our curse. Work was there before. Our job, Adam and Eve's job, was to to be image bearers of God, but it was also to subdue the land, to take what was chaotic and bring order. We talked about it at our kickoff, but this idea of being an image bearer can can kind of stay lofty and in the clouds. So just really quickly, I want to break it down for you if you weren't at the kickoff. To be an image bearer, I think, means two things. 
I think number one, it means that we are to reflect God. Like a mirror reflects whatever is put in front of it. We are to reflect God. So God's purpose from Eden, it says um, to these image bearers, multiply and fill the earth. God wanted the earth filled with his image bearers, those who reflect him, and secondly, those who represent him. So like an ambassador uh, works and, and reflects his king or his president from afar and doing the work. Our work as image bearers is to reflect, to represent God as we, um, as we work the land, as we become kingdom workers. This is the first time that I see this theme of priesthood, a theme that we're going to see all semester. We were made to be priests in a royal garden, to be royal, living in perfect communion with God. If you were part of our summer study, you remember when Peter wrote the same thought. He said, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you see the kind of image bearer language in that New Testament verse? So what we learn about ourselves right away in this study is that we have purpose. We are made to be priests. We are made to be kingdom workers doing the work of God. So from this creation account, what do we learn about God? Well, we already said we learned that he's transcendent, right? If he is creating the world and if he is hovering as the spirit over the waters, we see that he is so vast, so much bigger than, than we could understand. But don't we also see his eminence right here in Genesis? As he was walking in the cool of the day. God is transcendent and eminent. But do you know what else I see here? From the creation that God made, from his royal garden, I think we can also see his character. Because this place, it was beautiful, right? There was splendor and majesty there. This was God's home. This is where he was dwelling. It spoke of his character. Just like if you were to walk into my home, it would tell you about, my, about me, right? You would immediately learn things, whether it's subtle or not, about my character, about my personality. So picture yourself walking in Eden. What would you gather about God? As you saw gold everything, everywhere, would you not think royalty? As you saw beauty everywhere and perfection, would you not start to understand that God is perfect, that he is to be worshipped? Well, we know, sadly, that the story doesn't end there, right? We have our creation account, and then it moves into the fall of man. So what we see in our study is that the perfect nearness that man had with God in Eden was broken, we see that God's created design to be near to his people was fractured because of sin. So again, I'm going to quickly read this account in Genesis chapter 3, talking about Satan. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. 
So how, how did it get bad? How did it go downhill so quickly? Let's unpack um, what exactly Satan did. So he comes to Eve and he presents her with a question of doubt, right? With one question, what he does is he awakens a trust issue in her or a submission issue in her heart. She is now starting to doubt who God is. How did, he, how did she respond to him? Well, we read it, and at first glance, we're like, oh, yeah, so she knows what God says. She says, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And we're saying, yeah, girl, you tell him. Good job. You, you reiterated God's word. And then she says, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Do you see that? When we slow down our study long enough, we realize that right there, something horrible happened. Eve added a rule to God's word. Never did God say that extra rule, neither shall you touch it. Why is that a big deal? I think it was there that Eve is now doubting if God is indeed good. You ever been there? She is doubting who he is. She is now thinking, oh, he is a killjoy. He is holding out on me. In this moment, she's seen... The one thing she doesn't have, rather than everything she does have in this royal garden. And because she is unsure who God is, what his character is, it is like taking candy from a baby, as we said earlier. Now Satan has her, hook, line, and sinker. He hangs this carrot. He says, you will not die, for if you eat from it, you will be like God. And she's a goner at that point. Why is this such a big deal? See, when we get confused about who God is, then we are way more susceptible to unbelief settling in in our heart. And when we let unbelief stay in our heart, we will reach out and take whatever it is that we are so convinced we need. When I am not sure of truth up here, I am vulnerable to a lack of faith, and unbelief here, and then I will grab whatever I think will make me more secure, more happy, more attractive, more stable, more successful. I have seen this in my own house even. I am not kidding. I have seen this exact scenario happen in my own house, and I didn't even realize it until we were talking about this on Tuesday. I have three young boys. I have an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and an almost five-year-old. And my eight-year-old, I really do think that there have been times where I have said, no, you cannot have the cookie. And I hear that kid go to his brothers and say, she said, we cannot eat it or even touch it or we'll die. (laughs) Or something like that. It's pretty close that that's what he says. What is he doing to me at that moment? He's villainizing me whether it's deserved or not. He's villainizing me, right? He is painting me in this negative picture because he is so sure that he needs that cookie. He is now confused about who I am and about what kind of relationship I want with him. And so he adds a little rule in there. He's pretty sure I'm holding out on him. He has forgotten who I am and that I love him in that moment. 
He is doubting the love and protection behind my rule about the cookie. Put yourself there in Eden. What would it have been like to be Eve as she swallowed that fruit? Do you ever think about what she was expecting? She eats this fruit, and as she swallows it, she thinks that she will look down and see deity. She thought that the fruit was going to make her like God, but that's not what she saw. And that moment of awareness, I think, was a scary moment for her to look down and see that her plan did not work, that she had not become God. Instead, she sees nakedness, not deity. And that brings terror, and that brings shame, and so she covers up, right? She hides and she covers up. As you saw in your workbook this week, she takes fig leaves, her and Adam, and they sew together fig leaves to cover up their nakedness. But not super confident in those fig leaves, they also hide from God's nearness, from his presence. What do we learn about ourselves from this account? Sadly, I believe what we see is that we're the sisters of Eve. We have trust issues, don't we? We have submission issues, for sure. Sometimes all it takes for us is a question of doubt. And it's like a sleeping bear has been awakened in us. And in that moment, we get confused about the character of God. And unbelief then makes a home in our heart. And like I said, unbelief then prompts us to reach out and take care of ourselves rather than to trust in our creator. See, what I've seen in my own life, even in the last couple weeks, is that unbelief, no matter how small it is, if it is left to grow and make a room in my heart, then it will eventually prompt me to rival God. And instead of being his image bearer, instead of reflecting him or representing him, I am reaching out for so much more than a piece of fruit. I am reaching out for the throne of God. I have decided in that moment that I will rival him, that I will be my own God, that I will be the definer of what is good. I will protect myself. I will guide myself through life. I could go on and on. I rival God. I go after his throne. I usurp him in that moment. And there's moments where just like Eve, I look down, so to speak, and I think what I'm going to see is deity. I mean, in the metaphorical mirror of my mind, guys, so many times I look at myself and think I'm going to see something pretty close to deity. Oh, I am a goddess in this area. And all it takes is maybe a situation in life or a relationship to go bad or maybe someone to call me out and they hold up this mirror and I see the reality. Oh, bummer. I am not God. I'm not all powerful, although I want you all to think I am. I'm not all sufficient, drawing from my own resources. I'm not limitless. I have limits. 
And in that moment of awareness, I see my nakedness and it scares me. I am like Eve. I am Eve's sister in that moment. And so often what I do, and maybe you do it too, is I patch together a pretty pathetic version of those fig leaves, right? So I'm going to take the things I'm good at and my reputation, and I'm going to take all my self-effort and my organizational skills or my charm, and I'm going to patch together these fig leaves. And I'm going to cover myself, and I'm going to say, ta-da, I'm not as bad as you think I am. And I'm going to convince myself that I've got it covered. And I try to cover up my shame. And what I'm doing there is I'm convincing myself that God will be fooled and that you will all be fooled as well. Have you ever been there like me? Have you ever had doubts and fears awakened in a certain season of life that you didn't even know were in you? Have you ever made yourself the center of the world or the main character of every Bible story that you read? And maybe because of that, you're starting to get confused about who God really is. And because of that position, has the enemy ever come to you and redefined who God is? Or maybe you don't see it as the enemy, but maybe loss comes, maybe hardship, maybe broken relationships come, and that situation redefines who God is. He can't be good. He's no fun. He's holding out on me. He doesn't give me what I truly need. Has that lack of knowing him spread to your heart? Has that unbelief in your heart ever led you to behave a certain way where you want to take care of yourself? And have you, like me, ever had that moment of terrifying awareness where you look down and you say, oh, I'm not God. I'm not all these things. No wonder I'm so tired. No wonder I feel so defeated. No wonder I'm emotionally or socially exhausted. No wonder even when I think I've got everything perfect in my home or in my relationships, I still don't feel quite satisfied. Those moments where we are invited to say, I'm not God, so I am no longer going to rival him. What do we learn about God from the fall of man? We learn that he cannot be fooled, right? And that's a good thing. He sees through our fig leaves. He sees through even our good deeds or our religion. But what we also learn about him from the fall of man is how merciful he is. He is so merciful. He didn't kill Adam and Eve, did he? He let them live. And he is faithful. Even when Adam and Eve put him at a distance and they hid from him, where do we see his faithfulness? He's the one that calls out for Adam, right? And you answered this question this week, what did God want from Adam? Did he actually lose Adam and Eve? No, he knew where they were. But because he's so merciful and so slow to anger, he gave Adam and Eve a chance to confess, to come out and to show their nakedness and to say, here I am. He is faithful even to look at our efforts to hold it all together and to graciously say to us, that's insufficient. That's not enough. Those fig leaves are not enough. And then you saw this week 
the next step is that he is faithful to provide a more ample covering, right? He is more faithful to provide a covering. We are going to see this word covering often. We're going to see the word atonement, which is a related word. Because what God did in this Genesis account is he then made the first animal sacrifice. He shed blood for the first time and took the skins of those animals and put them on Adam and Eve to comfort them, to protect them, to cover them, ultimately. He is faithful to do that. The third scene that we saw this week in our study, as we are reading through this creation account, I call East of Eden, right? Or, or the Shadowlands. We, look, we looked at what happens after the fall. Well, God pronounces a curse on the serpent, and then he puts a curse on Adam and Eve's life, and then he exiles them out of Eden. What we see from this in this, in this post-Eden chapter is that Eden is actually going to cast a really long shadow across the Bible. We're going to see that at other points in the study where we're seeing things that are maybe hinting at what is to come. Well, Eden is going to cast this really long shadow as it will remind us every week of where we came from. But it's also going to promise us of what is yet to come. Okay, so every week you will be coming back to Eden at least once. And what we're going to look at is that there are these connections. And I'm sorry if you can't all see this. We can move this around. But from Eden we are going to see some of the things that I've already mentioned to you guys tonight. So Eden was full of gold, right? Well, we're going to see in a couple weeks that the tabernacle was covered in gold. There was gold everywhere, and that will tell us about God's character. We're going to see it in the temple as well. You guys looked at who guarded the, the garden after Adam and Eve were kicked out. Essentially, who took their job as priests? Who took their job to guard and take care of of the garden, that was two cherubim. Well, we're going to see in the tabernacle that there are two cherubim that, that guard the way of God. We even saw that in our first Peter study, right? We're going to see um, with the tabernacle, for example, that it's going to point to Jesus. We're going to see that the tabernacle and the temple also point to us as the believers when the Holy Spirit lives in us. We're going to see that Jesus from John, it says he tabernacled with us. He set up a tent with us. Next week, as we study the Red Sea, we're going to see that God's people are at a very pivotal time where they need to learn about him because they're learning what it means to be his children. And so we're going to see a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. We're actually going to see that connect with the Holy Spirit. Okay, we're going to see the cloud at the Red Sea also was seen at Mount Sinai and that really the tabernacle is just a portable Mount Sinai. And each week you're going to join me in my nerd moments and go, that's so cool, right? But my favorite is that we are going to see that it's so cool how the tabernacle is like a recreation of Eden because it will remind us of where we came from and how good it will be when God fully dwells. But even better, we are going to see that God has a plan to re-Edenize his world. In Revelation, we will see that God will re-Edenize his world. I'm not sure if that's a real word, 
but we're going to go with it for this semester. I didn't make it up, but I can't promise that it's actually, because every time I write it, it gets a little squiggy line under it. I'm like, go away. I like this word. So God will re-Edenize his world as he promises to fully dwell with his people. Well, why does that matter this week? Well, you saw at the end of your homework that we can pick up on that promise for restoration and redemption here in Eden, right? Because we see that God is offering redemption even now through that sacrificed animal. But there's even more that we mentioned at the kickoff that, you know, God kicks them out of Eden. He banishes them from Eden and he puts the angels with the flaming swords at the, the door. And we, we probably have thought like, well, that's because God is holy and nobody sinful can be in his presence without an ample covering. And I think that's true. But if you looked closely at the end of Genesis chapter 3, you hear God explaining why else he did this. It says, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. I asked you in your homework, why did God send them out? And if you're like me, you probably just wrote down the quick answer. But if we really look at this, we see that God is saying, Adam and Eve are now guilty. They're under a curse. If they stay in Eden, they will eat from the tree of life. That means they would live forever cursed. God wasn't okay with that. Right there, what we see is God has this big picture story of Jesus. Right there, we see that Jesus was plan A. He is saying, I am not going to let this happen without there being another option, an option to have eternal life, not under that curse, but to have eternal life through faith. That should blow our minds up from the first couple chapters of the Bible. We get the big picture story of the whole thing from Genesis all the way to Revelation that Jesus is plan A. We will get to see the gospel seven weeks in a row, lest we think that we have graduated from it. We will see it week after week after week. We'll be drawn to the fact that we need Jesus and that we need to hear the gospel every day. But the other truth that we're left with as we, as we finish up this first week of study is that we are still, even though we have Jesus, we're still living in the days of banishment. Right? To an extent, are we not living in exile? Are we not living east of Eden or in the shadowlands? I mean, do you, do you feel that some days? Again, imagine that you're Eve. And imagine what it was like in that moment where she steps out of this garden, this garden full of shade, full of comfort, the temperature just right. And in that next moment, she's walking out into the Middle East, the hot desert, the hot sun. That's a, for me, on some days, that's what life feels like. I don't feel Eden. 
I can very much understand that I'm still waiting for God to fully restore his presence. The last couple weeks have been pretty rough in our home. Lots of attacks, lots of defeat, lots of discouragement. Like I said before, lots of unbelief. I have felt like that toil that we read about in Genesis. I have had people corner me and lash out at me because they are the one who is walking away from God. We've had some family issues where we were confronted with someone who was really upset with us. And whether you're going to you know, take the blame for all of it or not, it doesn't matter. The point is that, man, I am living in exile. What do you think the people in Houston are feeling? Yeah. It's, it's hard to know that God is near. There's a lot of loss. And, and we have this option. We, we either... We either curl up just feeling alone and, and abandoned in exile, or we pick up this cord of restoration and we follow it all the way through the Bible. We pick this up and we say, we know that God dwells with us. We know that he comes near to his people. We're living in the already but not yet. You've probably heard that before. Already Jesus has come and, and the Holy Spirit lives in us. And so I have his promises and I have his presence and I have his help. I already have that. But the not yet, we're not living down here in the new heavens and the new earth yet. Where God will wipe away every tear from our eye. And so to an extent, we are living in exile Take time to reflect on the days where, where you feel that. And then grab a sister and say, long for God's nearness with me. Don't be okay keeping God at a distance while we live in this exile. Don't keep him at a distance logistically as you only cram your Bible studies on Sunday afternoons. Right? Move, move connection group or Bible study or church up the list so that you can you know, logistically or almost physically draw near to God. But maybe you're keeping God at a distance emotionally. Like we talked about with the Hosea study, sometimes the temptation is to stiff arm him, stiff arm him and keep him at a professional distance. See, if God is there on the other side of my stiff arm, then I can kind of treat him like a boss, like a master. So I'm going to straighten my tie and tuck in my shirt tail and wipe off my face and make sure that I'm a presentable worker for him and hope that he's impressed with all the good ministry I do. See, if he's at that distance, he can't see all my nastiness. He can't see my mood swings. He can't see my crazy that comes out. He can't see my selfishness, my anxiety or depression. The invitation this week and for the next six weeks it's to draw near to the God that has drawn near to us. To realize that it's not because we've earned this nearness, but it's because it is his plan throughout all of scripture to come near to his people. He is a holy God. He is transcendent, but he is so near to us. And that is our hope. That is our restoration. That because of Jesus, we can live so close to him. So this week, how can you 
live closer to God? How can you draw near to the God who has come close to you? Think about that as you uh, go into small groups. Think about the things that keep you distant from him. Remember to bring it back to what is it that you're not believing about his character. Let that be your plumb line of truth.